0: and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology and Law. In this episode, Task Force Co-Chair and Hoover Senior Fellow Jack Goldsmith interviews Mark Moyar about his new book, Oppose Any Foe, The Rise of America's Special Operations Forces. It was recorded on May 3, 2017. So when President Obama came into office and he had pledged to end President Bush's heavy footprint warfare in Iraq and Afghanistan, but it soon became apparent that he replaced it with what came to be known as a light footprint approach to counterterrorism. And I I think it's fair to say that the light footprint approach has three elements. One is the use of drones, uh, UAVs, or at least air fire from a distance. Two is the rise and importance of cyber, offensive cyber weapons, and offensive cyber operations. And the third is the use or the heavier use of special operations forces. And the third is what we're talking about tonight special operations forces. uh, Mark has written a book called Oppose Any Foe, the Rise of America's Special Operations Forces. And it's the definitive history of special operations forces. They didn't actually begin after 9 11. So um, we're going to talk about that history a little bit because the book really starts from the beginning, but we're going to focus mostly on contemporary issues. So why don't you just tell us, start off with telling us what are Special Operations Forces, what do they do, how do they fit into the military, how do they fit into our counterterrorism strategy? Give us the kind of brief overview.
1: Great. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Jack. And thanks, Benjamin and uh, Mike Frank and Hoover for hosting this great event. It's great to be here. And thanks to all of you for for coming to attend this. Uh, so, yeah, to start off, I mean, one of the the things that you find is that most people know something about Special Operations Forces but few people actually really know the details outside of the Special Operations world. So uh, each of the services has Special Operations Forces. The first one I'll mention gets confused the most is the Army Special Forces. So uh, a lot of times people confuse that with Special Operations Forces which Uh, or SOF, and that's the umbrella term that covers all of these organizations. Now within the Army, you've got not just the Special Forces, but you are also known as the Green Berets, you've got the Rangers, you have Delta Force, you have the uh, 160th Special Operations uh, Aviation Regiment, Uh, the Navy has the SEALs, they have special boat units, the Marine Corps has MARSOC, which is now known as the Raiders, Uh, the Air Force has a number of Air Commando units, uh, and then to further complicate matters, there's also something called JSOC, which is uh, falls under SOF, but it's sort of a special, uh, particularly elite unit. And that is, the main elements of that are Delta Force and SEAL Team Six. And so the book is uh, one of the things it does is uh, lets you understand how these things all actually came about. Because you know, one of the reasons I wrote this is simply most Americans really don't know that much about this, and most of what they know is post. 9-11. And if, if you read this you'll kind of see how they came about. A lot of these units were disbanded at one point and then reconstituted uh,
0: oftentimes as something else. So what's happening on, let's just start in the early history. The let's, I'm going to call the early history pre-9-11. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the demand for Special Operations Forces? What do they do that, that the conventional military forces don't or can't do? What was the impulse to create these units? Yeah, that's a great question. And
1: You know, up until 9-11, you actually have uh, a deficit of things for special operations forces to do. They're trying to find things to do, whereas since 9-11, there's been more than they can possibly handle. So, for most of the time up to 9-11, it's them trying to find missions to do and constantly having to reinvent themselves. The first units come about in uh, World War II and most of them are not created because somebody sat down and said we've got this particular need that we need to fill. It was actually for other reasons so that the Marine Corps Raiders were formed in 1942 because uh, President Roosevelt's son uh, had heard about this guy named Evans Carlson or he knew this guy who was a um, sort of an apostle of Mao Zedong but he was in the military and they thought it'd be cool to form these commando units and the Marine Corps commandant actually said this is a terrible idea we don't need these but the uh, president listened to his son, who was uh, a young Marine officer. So don't, don't think the president's listening to relatives is anything new. Um, so that gets formed. Then uh, the Army Rangers come into existence soon thereafter because uh, the United States at that time is trying to find ways to partner up with the British. And the British have these commando units that they're using for a, a raiding strategy. So, so we formed the Rangers for that. Now the Rangers, and there's a couple other units, they, initially the idea is that, that they're going to be doing these swift elite raids in various theaters but by the time they're formed in a lot of places they can't actually do these because they've come up against tough enemies that that are just too big and powerful. Uh, in fact two the, the Ranger units, two of their entire battalions get wiped out in Italy because they're outmatched by the Germans. Uh, and so the Rangers and the Raiders get disbanded. The one unit that survives World War II are the Navy Frogmen because they were actually formed for a particular mission which is to go in and clear the path for amphibious landing forces. Uh, But they fall out and then again we go through in the the subsequent history. There's again a raider type experiment in Korea that doesn't go as well as people wanted.
0: One of the themes early on is there's a consistent demand and need to form these units. A lot of it's for hostage situations as well. But, and yet, not a lot of success, um, mm-hmm. and even up into the later period in the the nineteen was it eighty attempt to rescue the hostages in mm-hmm. Iran, the Somalia experience in the nineteen nineties. These were special operations missions. Mm-hmm. The failures there weren't necessarily their fault, but there's a persistent demand for these units, even though they ca- not chalking up a lot of successes to that point. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, in the 70s is where the hostage rescue, rescue mission comes on, but again, there's not too many hostage situations you have to deal with, uh, but then uh, they also look towards doing other types of raids. But yeah, the the Desert One debacle was really a, a watershed moment because... This was the Iran mission. Yes, yeah, so this yeah. was Iran 1980. Uh, Why and
0: don't you just Some people in the room weren't born then. So why don't you just (laughs) remind people, (laughs) I was was born then. Uh, Yeah,
1: so Jimmy Carter, you know, these hostages are taken. This is is a
0: very serious consequential event in American history, but it's not terribly known these
1: days. Right, yeah. So, and originally Carter thinks he can uh, use diplomacy to renegotiate the return of these hostages, but uh, over time that seems less and less likely. So the military comes up with this plan to send in... The newly constituted Delta Force, along with some other forces, to go in and raid. Now, what happens on the mission is that uh, they never even get to Tehran because they they assign eight helicopters to this mission, thinking that they only need six. So, if two go, something happens to two of them, they can still go. Well, it turns out three of them break down. And so they have to abort the mission in the desert. And then on their way out, there's this crash and eight people get killed. So it's a big disaster. And, and this, uh, ironically, is actually a boon for special operations forces in that it creates the impetus for new resources and authority. So after that, you have JSOC being formed. And you have aircraft who are dedicated just to special operations rather than what you saw in Desert Storm or Desert One, excuse me, where you had uh, all these aircraft just brought in ad hoc from other places.
0: And then, so and so, they, then the, the minimum builds in the 90s, but they really come into their own after 9/11. So, just and I'm sorry, I'm asking you some more thematic questions, but just run us through the high points of that history, which I take it are Afghanistan, um, the use of special forces, especially in, in Iraq, and I take it the Bin Laden raid are three of the. High yes. Points?
1: Well, so in, um, in 2001, President Bush is trying to find things to do against the Taliban before we can mobilize our big. Uh, military forces to go in in, in great strength. So the CIA sends some folks over very early and then soon thereafter the Army Special Forces are asked to, to send some people over and I think sometimes we think this was A mission that was very well thought out in advance, but actually the special forces when they went in had no Afghan language capability because they never thought they were going to go to Afghanistan.
0: In fact, they didn't want to go in at first, didn't they? they Yeah, there was hesitation.
1: Yeah, there was, and a lot of wrangling over who was going to do what. Um, But what they the capability they brought that was really crucial was uh, laser acquisition targeting, so they could use precision munitions to hit Taliban positions together with the Northern Alliance, and so. This is, this is probably the case more than any other where you could say stru, uh, Special Operations forces had a strategic impact uh, pretty much by themselves. Uh, so and, and again, a lot of this owes to the Northern Alliance, but the, together with the Northern Alliance they destroyed the Taliban. So this is a huge boost for uh, the Special Forces uh, in particular, other parts of less involved. But then we get to uh, Donald Rumsfeld comes in, like a lot of politicians, he knows nothing about special operations forces, but he starts to hear about JSOC and thinks...
0: He likes uh, the idea.
1: Yes, and so he th- the idea of global manhunting, it really uh, gets going with him, and uh, so there's this effort to develop the capability to go after al-Qaeda in all these different countries, uh, and it actually turns out to be very difficult uh, foreshadowing later problems that... You just know,
0: to say a little bit more about what you mean about going after al-Qaeda, I mean, well, what, so, just give us a an illustration of what that involves.
1: Well you know, at the time they knew I think at least twenty countries there were Al-Qaeda operatives running around you know this is 2002 and so the idea was you could either go capture them interrogate them or kill them or do something um, but what they found figured out is that uh, State Department didn't like letting these military guys in all these countries and that's a problem we've seen continuing today so it was actually very hard for them to do much except in Afghanistan and Iraq so uh, General McChrystal comes in uh, as commander of JSOC and really revolutionizes the manhunting capabilities there. And this is only possible because of what we, <laughs> what happens in information technology. You suddenly have all these people using computers and cell phones, not really knowing that the uh, American Big Brothers listening in on them and so you've got this you know, huge upsurge in manhunting capability that, that is used in Iraq, uh, really unprecedented surgical strike capability and Causes great damage. What are the the numbers?
0: Is it it gets gets up to to, yeah?
1: It was ten. It was ten rates per month when he came, and it was got up to three hundred per month. So ten per night, which is really astonishing. I mean, you know, I'd looked at if you look in Vietnam where we tried to do something like this, it was almost impossible to get the information to do that. That was
0: one of the striking things is the intelligence collection aspect got very sophisticated, getting their computers, their telephones, downloading the information, and using it, if not in real time, to go after their friends or colleagues the next day. And that's one of the things that enabled them to generate the the speed.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so you would actually think a lot of people thought this would just decapitate the insurgency. Starting with when they got Saddam Hussein, people thought, well, get rid of Saddam and his sons. But it turns out the insurgents actually are able to withstand these very severe drubbings. And it takes US conventional forces coming in ultimately in 2007 because they are needed to hold ground. You can kill lots of insurgents, but if you can't hold ground, then generally uh, you're not going to succeed. And the same thing happened in Afghanistan.
0: And with the bin Laden raids, you point out that was a successful operation, but it didn't d- didn't lead to a lot of progress in the war against Al-Qaeda and associates in any event.
1: Right. I mean, Al-Qaeda was able to, you know, they've developed a deep bench. Um, you know, Bin Laden certainly had attributes that no one else could possess, but Al-Qaeda hasn't... Gone away. They've been able to thrive. I mean, they'd already by that time sent people out in a lot of different countries, so they have a lot of franchises that are successful, uh, including ISIS, which broke off from them. Uh, but also that raid created this backlash in Pakistan. Where, you know, they were since we didn't inform them, they kicked all of our special operators out, uh, who were actually there to do counterinsurgency. They shut down our drone base. Um, you know, I think Pakistan. It's actually faded from the news, but it's a place where, you know, I think we should, we need to to
0: be continuously vigilant. So this leads finally to one of the critical themes of the book, and that is, and I thought it was a surprising claim, not because I disagree with it, but because I'm surprised anyone disagrees with it. And the claim is, and you should explain what this means, that Special Operations Forces can be tactically very successful, but for strategic ends, they're not terribly useful. Uh, And so there are a lot of short-term, small successes, but they're not leading to progress in the war, it's one way of putting that. Could you flesh that out and tell us why you think that?
1: Yeah, so when they start off, they're very small in World War II, and everyone understands that they're just a tactical instrument, uh, part of a much larger enterprise. The idea that they can be a strategic instrument starts to take off with the creation of SOCOM. And the first real test of this is in Somalia in 1993. Uh, you may recall we had for a while we had a large marine presence there uh, but they pulled out in 93 and uh, but we still had this bothersome guy named Idid who was uh, interfering with our efforts to nation build and you know, we had very ambitious plans for building a state in Somalia and so they were trying to find a way to get rid of this threat and uh, there were certainly some at the time who were arguing if we bring a delta force with decapitation strike we can sort of solve this strategic problem of Id and these militiamen, so that's so they go in there to do that. Now, uh, is it, most of you have probably seen Black Hawk Down or read the book. That's what ultimately happens, and uh, you could argue had we kept pushing, you know, after the raid that doesn't go so well, we push. Special Operations Force say, "Hey, we need to keep going. We actually have killed a bunch of bad guys in this raid, and we need to go after Id." But but President Clinton. Uh, was sort of mortified by the image of Americans dragged through the streets, and so we pull out. And as a result of that, and cl- the clear lesson for most people is that that uh, the soft have been oversold. You can't just go in with a raid and, and take out ID. And uh, so that, that idea really fades. But it comes back after uh, 2001, when we see the special forces uh, helping overthrow the, uh, the Taliban. And uh, I think, again, you know, you have to look at the specific conditions. I think that was a peculiar moment in time. And, and you know, we tend to, a lot of times, take so much credit for ourselves when, uh, in most cases, it depends a lot more on, on who the local actors are. And if you actually look in Afghanistan, shortly after uh, the Taliban is overthrown, we try to use special operators with a different group of local militias at a place called Tora Bora, and those militias let us down. And, and so, uh, you see a bit of a fallout, but I think we've we've continued to see this idea of a strategic actor and, and the light footprint you mentioned at the beginning. There were certainly some who would say, who were saying uh, in 2009, 2011, uh, you know, the Iraq, Afghanistan, big uh, wars are not really necessary with, with these special fo- operations and drones. We can actually keep these problems at manageable levels. I, I personally think that turned out to be a huge mistake because when we pulled out quickly of Iraq, uh, we saw things collapse and Afghanistan, uh, the pullout happened again at a pace faster than the military wanted and we have, um, we saw a lot of the gains evaporate So there. just so everybody
0: understands, what, explain what you mean by Special Operations force not, not being able to, to achieve strategic success. The, uh, I, I, the... I think I know what you mean, but I just want to make sure everybody else does. Yeah, so. Um, the, the concept,
1: again, put in its, its more extreme form is that essentially special operations forces can achieve the strategic op- objectives of the United States without conventional military forces uh, taking part. You know, you know, clear, clearly, they can make a contribu- some contribution to the strategic um, enterprise and tactics lead towards strategic ends. But the theory really has, has been that strategic special operations forces can actually do this without the conventional forces. And uh, and this, of course, has not gone over well with the conventional forces. But again, I think there's still, we we hear some of that. And, and of course, too, a lot of this gets entangled in budget battles. And so special operators are, like any other part of the government, are trying to show how important they are and why they deserve money uh, more than, than someone else.
0: But the criticism after Somalia is basically, I think, one of the criticisms in your book, which is, they're not really they they aren't all that they're built up to be. They can't do what they what we hope they can do.
1: Right. Well, certainly in what terms of some people of, hope they can. Do. Yeah, certainly strategically. I mean, there's also the question of can they even achieve tactical success? And uh, they but have You need to better explain
0: better. what you mean by tactical and strategic. Yep. I still don't so, understand. Quite so
1: so tactical success means. would be uh, you know, simply winning whatever battle or completing whichever raid they are sent on. Um, you know, so in the case of Somalia, they're um, you know they went on a raid. It wasn't for Idid himself, but they went after someone else. And because his helicopter gets shot down, they end up we end up suffering ninety seven casualties. Um, we get, and you could say that operation at least detained of some people we wanted. Um, but the larger strategic objective of bringing st- uh, stability to Somalia clearly fails because we are forced um, to leave. Again, you know special operations are generally quite good tactically, but a lot of times the situations they are put in, are just so difficult, you know, Desert One being another example where, um, you know, the, the, the situation was just so tough that even the best people we sent were not able to complete the mission.
0: And yet, another theme of the book is how presidents going back to FDR, JFK, through certainly the last couple of presidents, have relied very heavily on Special Operations Forces. They romanticized them, you say. They. Mm-hmm. They rely on them more heavily than they should, and they continue to be a- attracted by their uh, their capabilities. Mm-hmm. And you think too attracted by their capabilities. So I've got some theories about why presidents do that. But what explains, that's a puzzle, isn't it? If they're really not obviously tactically successful and can't be strategically successful, why are we relying on them? Why do presidents, why are they continually lured by them?
1: Well, I think it's, you know to a large extent, the same reason that Americans more broadly are. we. You know, are fascinated by these elite units, and uh, and some of them have you know, been able to be very effective in showing the the, the uh, trials that they have to go through. I mean, the Navy SEAL Hell Week has become uh, sort of a, a, a great ad campaign for the SEALs, and so people. You know, we have the finest military in the world, and these are people who are, you know, among the best within that great military. So I think there's simply part of that. Uh, comes from this respect from the elite military. I think there's also been, you know, in popular culture, uh, you know, stories that romanticize them. Um, if you remember Rambo, he used to be a Green Beret. Um, the, the, certainly the Bin Laden raid did great things. Um, there was also actually before um, the first ones, are shortly before the first um, Special Operations Reform, there was a movie about Rogers Rangers who, uh, in fact, if you saw him, that someone just put something in the Wall Street Journal saying, well, Rogers Rangers were uh, a special operations force. Well, the thing about Rogers Rangers, though, they were actually uh, came into existence before 1776, and Rogers sided with the British. So it's a little bit of a difficult <laughs> issue. Um, but that's, again, there's this romantic notion that these are, super, you know, to, to some extent, almost superhuman figures. And that's where you can get in trouble, because then presidents start to think, these guys can do anything when, you know, again, they're great, but, they're, but they are uh, only human.
0: But isn't another element of it that there's stealthiness and there's tiny footprint? So presidents, for the same reasons presidents are attracted to covert operations, although a lot of most special operations aren't covert operations, but isn't part of it that they can achieve serious consequences and help tactically, if not strategically, without anybody knowing about it, without it being on the front page, without having a big footprint? With fewer casualties, perhaps, because mm-hmm. you don't with that with, with much less expense mm-hmm. it doesn't seem crazy, especially in modern times well it again, it depends on what we're accomplishing but but isn't that the main attraction that, that's that, certainly that, that you can achieve things and keep it off off the front pages and it's less expensive and there's less publicity
1: I think that's certainly been important for for some presidents, and, uh, and again, we go through cycles where presidents uh, are trying to minimize our military involvement. Uh, either we're after a war, certain presidents are just less comfortable with American force. Uh, but certainly, you know, President Obama was trying to reduce our military presence overseas. But he didn't want to be seen as soft on defense. So this is one way you can do that. You can say, well, hey, we are using these special operations forces. But again, as you mentioned, they're, they're less expensive. They're less controversial. Uh, Again, keeping them out of the public eye can be valuable. Lyndon Johnson in 1964 uses them because he wants to hit North Vietnam, but he doesn't want people to know about it because he's actually running as a peace candidate. Um, you know, we saw in Syria, uh, President Obama sending special operations forces without the public knowing. Um, and then you know, there's an interesting d- distinction that's made there too, because we were told there are no troops on the or no boots on the ground. Um, so. Then we start to get this notion that maybe special operations forces don't count as boots on the ground. Um, and so, and there's a mixture, certainly. Some of it is political self interest, some of it, you know, there's rational explanations for why you'd want to keep these things secret uh, because there may be some diplomatic advantage.
0: So, in terms of secrecy, as an outside observer trying to figure out what special operations forces do, It seems to me that they're more secretive than their equivalent in the Central Intelligence Agency. Title 50 offensive operations I feel like I know more about through leaks and public testimony and reporting. I feel like I know more about what the Central Intelligence Agency is doing than I do about what JSOC is doing, and I know that the Central Intelligence Agency's reporting requirements are much more robust for their oversight committees than for the Armed Services Committees. So they're really this remarkably, they are remarkably secretive. We still, your book is amazing, but we still don't know a lot about their missions.
1: Yes, and certainly they have not been subjected to the same congressional scrutiny. Uh, You know, when they were formed in 19, when SOCOM was formed in 1986, Congress was uh, in love with Special Operations Forces. And they've largely continued that for a long time. There wasn't this distrust that you had between Congress and the intelligence community. And it's not really till you get to about two thousand fourteen when um, SOF is trying to expand into new realms that suddenly Congress finally takes uh, takes a real stance on this. But um, yeah, again, historically there hasn't been a scrutiny, and I think in some senses well, certainly in some senses it makes sense to keep things secret. You don't want your operational procedures to get out, but at the same time it inhibits the Internal uh, professional disc- discourse that you would have in most professional fields, and I spent some worked as a special operations command for several years, and you can clearly see uh, you know, a lot of what they will do is cl- classified. But when things are in the classified realm, uh, they very rarely reach enough people to really get a discussion going. So I do think. There, there is a need for more open conversation on a lot of these issues.
0: And you describe in the book, especially after the Bin Laden raid, this is my phrase, not yours, but almost like special operations got too big for their britches. That uh, that first of all, there was a lot of leaking by individuals about, about what was going on. Second of all, the relations vis-a-vis Congress, you call it the McRaven overreach, I think. Mm-hmm. Would you tell us about that? And then the yep. response, you talked about it a little bit.
1: Yes, well there was so much adulation that came after the bin Laden raid. You've probably seen some of the videos of people claiming to be the guy who killed bin Laden. I think one of them just published a book too. But uh, the... Um, so yeah, they, they I think, um, it kind of went to their heads. And this has been a, a problem, I think, in other cases. and Special operators get accused of this. Partly, again, just because they're so elite, sometimes it goes to their head a little bit. But they, uh, you know, Admiral McRaven wanted to expand his authority, and this has been an ongoing source of concern uh, where although SOCOM gave special operations a four-star headquarters, the troops were still under the authority of these regional commanders like the Central Command commander, for example. So, Admiral McRaven was interested in increasing his authority over these units. Uh, He also set up this office in DC, the SOCOM uh, National Capital Region, uh, he did a lot of these things without informing Congress, and when Congress found out about them, they started to get upset. And uh, the people that were in charge of this had come back from Iraq and Afghanistan, where I think that they, they figured you could do what you uh, want if you're in JSOC, essentially. And there was a, a, uh, an adage they often used, which was, um, it's easier to get uh, forgiveness than permission. So they basically went around and started doing lots of things mm-hmm. and blew off Congress, and so Congress finally uh, got sick of this and, and reminded SOCOM that they actually control the money, and so in the book I detail how eventually Congress reasserted its authority, It cut out some some programs that that uh, Admiral McRaven had wanted, and uh, so it was a bit of a, a humbling experience for SOCOM. And I think um, you know, McRaven actually did get some of the reforms he was looking for, but uh, you know I think the idea of SOCOM being come becoming much more powerful really got shot down as a result of that.
0: And yet, still enormously heavy reliance. Another theme in the book is just the number of deployments. And one of the things I wasn't as, as well aware of was just how, what a devastating impact is having on the members of Special Operations Force. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes, in fact, General Thomas and the uh, acting ASD Sola, Teresa Whalen just yesterday were talking to Congress about this and they said how these unending deployments are taking this you know, psychological toll, uh, you know, high rates of suicide, substance abuse. Um, so again, I think we, we became over-reliant on them. Uh, if you look at just how many deployments they've been doing, uh, you know, even the, and these are a lot of the, the toughest Americans, but you know, they, they themselves have their breaking point. And uh, so the leaders of special operations who you know, normally are very eager to get missions are actually saying, um, and this has been too much. Uh, I think the phrase used, we're, we're eating our young, is what uh, uh, Teresa Whalen said. So um, we need, I think, to be more realistic uh, about what these forces can do. We, we have seen some signs out of the administration that they're starting to fix this, because we've been using Marines in uh, Syria, for example. The uh, Airborne are doing things in Somalia. But um, you, know, you can't be on a constant wartime footing uh, doing a wartime pace indefinitely without these kinds of problems.
0: So I going to switch topics just a little bit and then ask a final question. Switching the topics a little bit, and I don't know if you can answer this because I, I don't remember reading about this in the book, but one of the things that was notable was how well Special Operations Force got at mining, collecting and mining intelligence in real time to uh, using digital means especially mm-hmm. t- and using that information to help them in their... But you didn't talk much, and I don't know if this is because you can't talk about it or because there's nothing to say. So I'll just ask it: okay. How are so, so how are they using cyber weapons at all? I mean, are they has this? Is, I I don't think uh, special operations forces as using offensive cyber uh, weapons in any way. Maybe for intelligence purposes, but maybe for attack purposes. Okay. So that's the question: are, Is that is that part of their mission? And part of, they, part of their part of their part of their tools, I should
1: say. Yeah, they've had some role. I'm a bit removed from this now but as I understand it, uh, you know, a few years ago there, there was certainly when cyber became a big thing everyone was kind of trying to jump into cyber um, and SOCOM included. I think what they have figured out is that um, the the real cyber warriors who are sort of, uh, you know nerdy computer guys are not the kind of people who are going to be in special operations forces. And so there's a, certain niche capabilities they can play but uh, Those I,
0: big brony guys can't do computer programming. Is that what you're
1: the, oh, uh, um, that that's not their their core competency. Right. Now maybe you know sneaking in to do something, uh, but uh, but yeah, I think um, I, as far as I'm aware, I don't think they're they're going to be playing
0: a, a central role in that. But I'm talking about as a tool. It's just not not obviously they're using it heavily as a tool. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let me give you a wrap up question. So the book I would say is sympathetic and empathetic. It's an empathetic account of Special Operations Forces, but also quite critical, quite critical of their capabilities, critical of where they are now. They're, they're being overused. We we have a romanticized sense of what they can do. They're burned out. They're getting cocky. Some of their leaders are tyrannical and maybe not necessarily rule followers. Um, and yet there's this incessant demand for them and presidents rely on them. So what is your just in the counterterrorism context, what is your vision for how they should operate? What would it, what would a proper proper use of special mm-hmm. operations forces be?
1: Yeah. Well, the first thing, uh, the first point I would make is that <coughs> it would not be a good idea to, to keep expanding them. Both Bush and Obama expanded them quite dramatically. We went from 38,000 in 2001 to at least 70,000 today. Again, partly because we thought they could do all these great things, but at the same time we've been shrinking the military the rest of the military and uh, for one thing, you know if you keep getting bigger, you're gonna become less and less elite. Um, but also that comes at a cost to the conventional forces and I think you know right now it seems like conventional warfare is uh, you know a thing of the past, but we've seen these big wars come up on us, and so you can't just simply forget about the conventional wars. Uh, in terms of what Special Operations Forces should do, I mean, they've continued to do some of these surgical strike missions uh, in various places. And that's a capability, um, I think, worth, certainly worth doing. Uh, there's a question of, do we really want to do this with very low level people? That's been an ongoing concern. But I think it's also a skill that you can apply elsewhere. I mean, we've just heard, again, people in Congress talking about, you may need to use these guys to go in and seize some rogue regimes Nuclear weapons. Uh, there's also the um, we, in, this is another confusing term in special operations, but unconventional warfare is what they tend to call the support of resistance groups. Uh, but this is something that certainly seems uh, applicable. I mean, we're doing it in places like Syria already. But there's also other countries where, you know, given how the, where the world is now, we may need to do that. So that's a capability uh, to keep. And then also counterinsurgency, which is closely related to that mission uh, is something worth keeping because, again, even though we may not want another counterinsurgency, we're going to do it. And so maintaining your language skills, your cultural skills are very important. And um, a lot of what's being done and will continue to be doing is, is uh, you know, what we now call capacity building, which is mainly training and education of, of our foreign allies. And the book, I go into some
0: why don't you just Let's say a few words about that, because that was the biggest black box for me and I learned, just because I think most of what they do is training and education. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you just look at the whole 75,000, mm-hmm. I think more than half of them are actually engaged, or at least a good number of them. So why don't right. you just, in closing, say what that piece is?
1: Yeah, in the book, I kind of summarize it. If you're really interested, I wrote three monographs for Sal Joint Special Operations University. Um, but the key points, uh, well, what I would say is this started with the Kennedy period, but it was done very... On a very ad hoc basis and a lot of it's been short term, uh, a lot of times six-week courses where you go in and train someone and leave. We have... But they're pre- training them
0: in, s- in special operations.
1: Not necessarily. Okay. Sometimes they do. And that's an a, a, a interesting question too is because do you want to create elite units? And I argue usually you don't because these countries need more than elite units to do things um, in, in a lot of cases. But what we found too is these short-term Missions don't really have lasting value because, um, for one thing, it's just not a lot of time to learn a skill. But a lot of a lot of the problems we see in these countries is not just skills, but it's sort of cultural attitudes. And you need to a prolonged, persistent presence. And this is something we've learned uh, that SOCOM has, has certainly learned in the last few years. Um, but Colombia is probably the best example of we where we had this long presence, and you build. You know, the the most important change is generational. Uh, because th- the biggest problems are cultural. All
0: right. Thank you. It's a great book. Mark will stick around and talk if you want to speak to him uh, in close quarters afterwards, and he'll sign books as well. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for me. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dauer for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.